Welcome, Archons. Uh, starting off the show today with the Time Traveler deck giveaway. I did the drawing earlier this morning, about an hour and a half ago. Um, we had two listeners hop on and make sure that everything was on the up and up. So all was, all was clean, all was clear. You can watch the video on demand on my Twitch stream. That video on demand will be up for the next 14 days. So if you want to watch the exciting number generator generate that winning number, um, you may do so. But otherwise, uh, congratulations at Happoween. At Happoween, either DM our Sanctimonious podcast Twitter page or Dan is someone. And we can work out shipping details to get you the Time Traveler deck. You are our winner. Thank you, Hallie Happoween. And thanks to everyone for entering the contest. Thanks for the retweets. It really helped out, you know, the show's visibility and we appreciate it. And stay tuned. We're planning on maybe doing some more in the future, some more giveaways, just some random stuff. So stay tuned to the show. Welcome, friends, to Sanctimonious, a podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss a new Keyforge topic every week. These topics will range from how to improve at the game to building community and everything in between. I'm Jake, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Dan. Uh, Dan, so Sanctum House, greatest house uh, ever or just a great house? <laughs> greatest joke house ever. My goodness, <laughs> that guy is on a roll. <laughs> No, uh, Sanctum is the most efficiently boring house in the game right now. I mean, it just, it does its thing. It doesn't care what anybody thinks about it. And it just, you know, sticks to the board and reaps. Yeah, I want to be clear at the top that, you know, maybe we lose a little bit of credibility if everyone thinks we really are out there thinking that Sanctum is like by far the strongest house in the game. Uh, but does does lead to a pretty good Twitter bit, so... No, it's it's fun. We're we're I'm enjoying our uh, Twitter's tweets. It's funny guy, funny guys. <laughs> I accidentally tweeted as like I thought it was on my account, and I think I responded to somebody <laughs> in my voice from like the sanctimonious account, and I was like, wait, that's not right wait, at all. Delete, 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 tweet, delete, delete. 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 Yeah. Oh crap! I just kicked over something. Okay, <laughs> high quality podcasting studio there. So yeah, want to jump right into our weekly inspiration? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so uh, my weekly inspiration, uh, I wanted to give a very brief tournament report. So I played in a sealed tournament, and it was sort of special because what was on the line was one of those gamma decks. So it was, uh, if you're unfamiliar, for the gamma trade show, they released a limited number of decks that have like sort of a special logo on it but then what's really cool is the names incorporates the name of a local uh game store uh so i really wanted to win the stakes were still relatively low but it's kind of the highest stakes tournament i've been able to play in yet so i went into it with that mentality of you know i really want to do my best and, and try and win that prize there were nine people there so i was smelling a little bit of blood in the water like i might really have a chance at pulling it off <laughs> so I opened my deck and the deck I ended up with was called Piper L. Elicbus the third. Uh, I tweeted out an image of the deck list at my Twitter, which is at Jake Freed, if you want to look more fully. Um, but it was a Sanctum Logos Mars deck. 
uh, which isn't wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, and it was a really unique deck as well because it had seven upgrade cards, which I think is the <laughs> most that I've ever seen in a deck. I had one with eight. Okay, so there's more out there. But either way, so there was seven upgrades and 13 creatures. So it kind of felt a little bit lopsided in that sense. I was sort of underwhelmed with what I opened, but still thought, you know, I was going to give it my very best effort. So I go into game one against my friend uh, David, and he opens the very first turn of the game. And he does some, he plays library access into reverse time is just <laughs> like off to the races and just, you know, sitting there like, my goodness, like I'm already not super thrilled with my deck. Um, and you're going against a LART deck, library access for first time. Exactly. So game one, I'm playing this like kind of ridiculous combo that he just draws into in his opening hand. Let me just clarify something really quick for, because we're kind of, this one's a new, new player focus. So the sealed deck, you didn't know that was coming because you didn't see their index card before the game, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yep, so totally blind, your opponent first turn larts you. Like, that feels good. Feels good, man. <laughs> yeah, it was a little demoralizing, but I did kind of get somewhat fortunate to where it fizzled out after, you know, I think he only generated four amber and put a couple of creatures on the board. So all things considered, like a strong opening turn for sure, but not insurmountable. Uh, so we keep playing. He had a couple, I think, relentless whispers in the shadow. He had a bait and switch. Just kind of everything you'd hope for. But my answers were coming up at the perfect time. He used the sting to capture all my amber from forging a key. And then I had the effervescent principle in hand to sort of shut down that play, which would have otherwise probably lead to a runaway victory for him. Nice. Very nice. I kind of I kind of felt grimy. because I So I ended up winning on... <laughs> on time and so it goes to time on his turn and then it goes back to me for a chance to like sort of answer whatever's going on on the board and th this is my first time ever going to time in a tournament and i really felt bad about it because there were a couple of turns like this deck i was using is so weird that i went like really deep in the tank and had to think pretty hard about some of these plays uh so i felt like it was sort of my fault that we went to time and if we didn't go to time he would have won on the following turn. Like, I couldn't have stopped him from forging. Oh, so, geez. Yeah, so literally the only way I win that game is going to time, and then I, I do end up winning on tiebreakers. Yeah, you are you you are a scumbag. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, David, man, uh, if you're listening to this. That was a rough one, but I was, you know, feeling proud of the way I played to get to that point against such a strong deck. Uh, sure. Games two and three, just really briefly, they were kind of uneventful. In the second game, I played against a really nice player, uh, but he just wasn't able to ever get anything going. And I was able to win very quickly. And I got to look over my shoulder and watch some, the table next to me. Uh, a guy, Whitney, was playing his deck and comboing off with Library Access and the Pen Seed and just has his whole deck. And it's like, <laughs> what is going on at this nine-person sealed brutal, tournament? Brutal sealed tournament. <laughs> Lart and Lands both in the same tournament. Yeah. That's a, that's a spicy box right there. Yeah, it, so it was, a, it was a first print run box. Yep, that'll do it. Anyway, in game three, I played against uh, a new player. He made a couple of mistakes. I think new, new players are more typical to make. So even though he maybe had a slightly stronger deck and, and had an edge early on, I was able to win, kind of going away. So I finally get, I made it all the way to the final 3-0. and 
and I'm playing against Whitney with the lands deck. And Whitney's like a really nice guy and a, a very skilled player. Like, man, I'm just really proud to like have got to this point. <laughs> like, that you're gonna you're gonna crush me because I saw your deck. I have no way to interact with Nepenthes at all. So if he gets the combo, I just lose. So my only chance is to race, and I just kind of get like the nuts draw. I got uh, I, so I have virtuous works early on. Um, and then he played just like dropped a ton of dumb untamed guys. And I had, um, what's the sanctum card? Like heroic few where you gain a glor- glorious few, glorious few where you gain one Amber. Come on, this is our house. Yeah. Jake. I'm sorry. You gotta uh, know our house. Yeah. So glorious few to gain like seven Amber. So I go up to 12 Jeez. Amber on maybe like the third turn of the game and I, I'm up two keys to zero. So I'm like starting thinking to myself like, wow. I'm actually just gonna like, you know, win this, and then the next <laughs> keyboard happens, right? And so, so I'm like, you know, okay, if he doesn't get the combo, I'm good. And then the next turn, he plays Ether Spider with a Dominator, uh, giant taunt <laughs> guy on its side, and I just like flip over my Archon card and start scanning my deck list. And I'm like, oh wait, I just like can't beat that. And, like I have zero like removal cards. So my whole strategy from that point on is just to like kamikaze my guys. I start whittling down the dominator and he drops another one on the other side of the spider. Oh, and that, that was that was game. Well played, sir. Well played. It, it was a great game and a very worthy champion. And it was a super fun time. So that was my weekly inspiration. Good deal. That sounds fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. All right. I have two and I'll do them quick since Jake uh, got a little blowhardy there. Um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> i was giving you a hard time all right so i found an interview online they introduced brooks clark who finished second at vault tour denver and there's a part of the article that really stood out to me they asked him about the three decks he chose and why he chose them and he's like well i picked the three decks i'm most comfortable with i've got 300 plus games with bomb foot and like i had to read it like twice it was like 300 plus games and then it like Further on in the sense, he's like, and yeah, and the other two, I've got about 150 games each with. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I'm really just scratching the surface with some of my decks. Like some of my best decks, I was like, oh, yeah, I've got like 30 or 40 games played. I'm feeling pretty good about these decks. But uh, I thought about it. And yeah, like 300 plus 300 plus games, like I don't probably don't have the time to get there. But it just really shows to play at a high level over like a two-day event like that and to really do well. Like you really like knowing your deck in and out is probably like the most important thing you can do. Like um, don't audible to some random deck on the day of that you've played like 15 games with, because you're not going to have the reps necessary and the knowledge necessary to how to play against different, different types of decks. Your buddy hands you a sweet list and you're like, I'll just go with this. <laughs> right? Don't do that. I'll just go with this. Like this deck is rated 101 SAS. I'm going to run this today with no previous reps. Like, yeah, you might do okay with it. Like, I'd probably do okay, but there's going to be games where I'm just not going to be sure what I'm supposed to be doing, like, which line I'm supposed to take. And so, yeah, so I've been consciously trying to run my top three to four decks much more now. And that kind of hurts my soul a little bit because I do really enjoy, like, just grabbing random lists and just playing different lists game after game. But, yeah, so that was one big inspiration for me this week. My other inspiration is I played a like a two-hour stream a few nights ago against Mr. Sadistic from the Key Charge GG podcast. What's up, guys? And the very last game we played, gosh, this amazing back-and-forth game 
it was just haymakers back and forth. I think, I think when I looked at the crucible tracker, I think he had like, he was in check 11 times somehow and he'd still hadn't won the game. Like I was just playing every like denial card at the exact right time to just keep him off forging. It was two to two. I get to six Amber and then I go to eight Amber and then I pass the turn and I completely realize, like, as soon as I pass the turn, I'm like, oh, he's got two Drumbles in his deck and, like, three Terrors. He's probably going to go Drumble, Terror, Terror here and win the game. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and I did figure out in my stream how to make it so both hands are revealed on stream. So if you do want to go back and watch that stream, it is on the video on demand. I think it was, like, May 7th. And this game was the last game played. But yeah, like I looked back at it, I went back and watched my own VOD stream afterwards, and yeah, he had no answers. If I would have stayed at six, I win the game. That was like his best deck, and I'd played against it a couple of times before, so I mean, I kind of knew like it, it's all about dribbles and capture and terrors and stuff, so it was just such a frustrating moment because I played so well the entire game to put myself in that situation to win, and just blew it. Oh. <laughs> So frustrated, because I've—I I mean, that's been one of my weaknesses so far in Keyforge is those two-two games. It's, I don't know. I just get so bloodthirsty. You just want to like really finish them and grind them out, and it's bitten me a couple of times now. So something I'm still improving. Yeah, that's a, that's such a hard thing to do is make that call of when not to gain maximum amber because usually it's not right, but. To identify yeah. those times and make that no in the notes here i have it opponent index card awareness like <laughs> i knew i'd looked at that you know i'd looked at his list a couple of times since i played it a couple of times that night and yeah i knew he had two jumbles i knew he had the capture maybe there's just there was no reason to go over six i mean there just wasn't if i stay at six even if he has shreds like even a single shred i don't remember the list exactly um, the worst he could have done is put me down to three and then his terrors wouldn't have triggered to put him back over six again because I'd used every form of steel that I had to uh, keep him off the forges the previous turns. Yeah. Well, if you flip it to the other perspective of Mr. Sadistic, I think it's also a good lesson about keep playing to every out, you know, because he literally had one out and played to that situation and then got the reward for it so you know really good play on his part yep no and he had he had the jumbles in archives too he was just waiting for when he needed them important to remember what's on your opponent's index card in their deck and that's my inspiration play your deck a lot really get familiar with it especially if you're going to a big event and you're hoping to do well just jam games but yeah we'll get to that All right, so today's main topic is going to be preparing for your first big event. Um, we're going to kind of do this more from the slant of like a Vault Tour premiere level, but this information also can be used for chain-bound events as well, although the tools and requirements might be a little little more relaxed at the chain-bound, but we're just going to kind of focus on you're, you've signed up for that Vault Tour and you're about to go and you've got two months to prepare, and this is what we feel you should probably be doing to prepare for that event. Um, so the first thing we wanted to talk about is picking your deck or three decks, um, for sealed deck. I mean, you're not really going to get to pick a deck, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't, don't, don't worry about that. 
But uh, so for picking your picking your deck that you want to play in an event, you want to choose the deck that you feel are the best, duh, um, and that you have a lot of reps with. And like I said, in the inspiration, I mean, Brooks had played his bomb foot deck 300 plus times. I'm not saying we all need to get to about 300 plus games played with a deck, but you do want to play a bunch of games with those decks. So you do know the ins and outs and the different lines the deck can take and how it matches up against different kind of deck archetypes that are out there. Agreed. And I think it's intuitive that you want to pick a deck uh, that you played a lot because you'll know how to play it well. What's less intuitive is if you're playing at a big event where you're going to be playing for you know eight plus hours in a single day, that familiarity with your deck is going to uh, really be ease your mental exhaustion because you'll sort of seen situations come up and just sort of know intuitively what to do so you won't have to really like grind out and mentally analyze every single situation in the same way you do when you're playing an unfamiliar deck no and as we kind of talked about a little bit too just because a deck is good doesn't mean you'll pilot well that's where those reps really come in. It's like, yeah, if your buddy has this like amazing deck and he hands it to you the day of the event, it's like, hey, you can run this because I'm not going to run it in the tournament. While that would be really cool, it's just it's a really iffy, <laughs> iffy take to like take a deck that you maybe have like a few reps playing against because playing with and playing against a deck are totally different. And you'd probably best best serve running your own deck. I guess another interesting tidbit that I read somewhere about the two teams that played uh, that kind of did well, Team Sass and Team Reapout, they both stated that even though they had that pooled resources of decks, I don't, they, I'm pretty sure they said they all just used their own decks. Like nobody really like traded across decks or anything just because they knew how, how to pilot their deck. Yep. I think that I, I saw that as well. And I think it makes perfect sense. I guess one caveat could be if you really only own a couple of decks and somebody, you know, and then you don't have access to something that's reasonably competitive, then maybe you could pick up something, borrow something. But other than that, go with what you know. Yeah. And I mean, if if you're in that situation, definitely reach out to your friend or whoever that you're going to borrow the deck from ahead of time and make sure you can get it ahead of time so you can practice with it. I mean, it's just, you just don't want to show up the day of with a brand new deck. You don't want to play sealed when everybody else is playing Archon. Yeah, great way to put it. All right, so our next point is you want to try to pick a deck that's going to fare well with the expected meta, as well as doing some research ahead of time to determine what the meta might be. Um, this is this is kind of a critical one in the card game world. It pretty much affects all card games where you, when you go to an event, you're trying to pick a deck that you think is going to do well against the other decks, a deck that you can pilot well that fits your particular play style, and one that's not going to put you at like a, a drastic disadvantage in the majority of what you think your matchups will be. But this is always a really hard one to determine because, yeah, the meta changes. And if you make the wrong call, then, yeah, you might just have a bad day. But if you make the right call where you give yourself a leg up on your competition, it can help propel you to a lot more success on the day. Yeah, let's give an example of sort of what we're talking about here, just in case people aren't really familiar with the concept of the meta and making a call. Um, so in, in the most recent Vault Tour, uh, because the library access Nepenthe Seed combo decks had been doing very well in outperforming uh, sort of their expected representation at the other previous Vault Tours, uh, a lot of people thought, 
and, and rightly so, that these decks were a problem. And so they chose to bring a deck that had a way to interact and sort of disrupt that combo. So even though your best deck in a vacuum, your best win rate on the Crucible uh, might not have an answer to that, so you actually end up taking your second best deck to the tournament because you know you're likely to face uh, these types of decks. Yep, no, that's it exactly. And there, <laughs> I read all these tournament reports and everything, and uh, again, a lot of the day two people were talking about how on day two they tried to get into their deck and this is talking about Denver. So whatever deck they were on after day one was the deck they got to take to day two. And a lot of them said they tried to get away from artifact strategies, figuring on day two they'd be running into people packing artifact hate. So they went for more speed speed decks, it seems, on day two to kind of go against the meta. So it was a good meta call since we saw two decks that are probably more speed control oriented than actual um, lands oriented. Yeah, and and I think that's such a healthy thing for the game. A lot of people are sort of wondering what a meta would even look like in a unique deck game. Um, and happy to report that it does, in fact, exist and is constantly changing. So just because that seemed to be the right call for this last tournament, maybe that means that now people will leave their artifact kind of control at home next time, and that'll open the doors for sort of the lands decks to come back. And I mean, a lands deck yeah. did make it to the top four but it did not make it to the final table because <clears throat> apparently it is beatable. <laughs> um, but then I guess just the other thing to always take in consideration, I feel like a lot of the good decks, we see a lot of two power creatures right now in the meta. So just having a way to deal with two power creatures seems to be something that you want to maybe factor in. Right. Because hunting witches, triple hunting witch was a popular theme at this last vault tour. Um, you've got John Smiths, you have... Ember Imps. Ember Imps, yeah, Ember Imps were huge in this tournament. Right, and maybe, you know, now we're talking contingencies upon contingencies, so now you can get ahead of that and potentially play decks without a lot of two-drop creatures because you know that people have three times Relentless Whispers in their decks, and those decks are doing well. So if there aren't good targets for that, then maybe you're positioned against those types of decks. So there's lots of different ways you can take it. Yep, and I think the last thing we'll mention about selecting your decks, if you are doing a three-deck three, three deck survival, which has happened twice now, um, the general consensus is to order your decks your second best, your best deck in the middle, and then your third deck on the last slot. Because you want to try to get as far as you can with your first deck, you're probably going to lose the game on the first day just because you run into somebody else that has a really good deck or just something happens. You're probably not going to X and O. So a lot of people preferred to have their best deck in the second slot. So that way, when you're towards the top tables, you're running your best deck. What's our next topic here? Now we're on practice. <laughs> as Dan alluded to earlier in his inspiration uh, practice is also hugely important in preparing to attend your first tournament uh, or especially your first vault tour tournament. Um, playing as many games as possible with your deck uh, is only going to prepare you for both the different situations that will come up and then also the mental fatigue of playing game after game after game, which is very real and might be surprising if, it, if it's your first ever time attending a tournament the magnitude uh, just in terms of length as a vault tour. Yeah, because most vault tours right now have been six rounds on the first day, so that's six hours of 
I mean, I guess they're 35 minute rounds in Archon. So it's going by pretty quick, but just the level of decision-making you're having to make turn after turn because, you know, each turn really matters. If you're trying to do well, you're really trying to press every advantage and you're not just, you know, casually playing cards with your buddies. Like there's, there's kind of something, there's, there is something on the line. You want to do well day two and all that good stuff. Just in playing magic, it was always surprising. Like after a long tournament, I'll get home and I'll just, you know, have a, a, like a headache. And it's just from thinking so hard for so long, because generally, you know, in life, you're not really in a situation where you have to be like actively using your critical reasoning skills for such an extended length of time. And that's a real skill and something and really a muscle to sort of work on and develop. Indeed. Um, so along with practice, um, if possible, if you have a friend or find someone who's also planning on going to the event or just has a collection of very good decks and is a very good player, play as many p- games as possible against them. Crucible is great for getting in a lot of games, but decks and opponents are not super consistent on there. The better tournament prep, if you're really prepping for a big event, would be to play in the competitive room. The deck quality and the player quality in the competitive room right now is kind of insane in such a good way. Like There's so many good players and really good decks floating around in there that if you really want to know how you stack up with your deck, it's a great place to go. Um, but then it's also important, too, just to play games in real life because... I know I went into Voltour Seattle where I played most of my Keyforge on Crucible and just things like forging keys, like you just kind of forget because it's just all automated on the Crucible and there's just certain combos and things that you have to execute in real life that the Crucible kind of shortcuts for you. So it's really important to play a bunch of games in person as well, just to get used to how the different interactions work and making those rulings on your own without the assistance of an AI telling you what step you need to take next. We talked about teams last time, and I mean, teams are pretty much just a practice group that you can have. So whether you have an official team or whether you have three or four people from your local group that you know, that you can just get together one night and just jam games with your best decks, just kind of rotate, just play a bunch of games and just figure out figure out those lines and just really get comfortable. Also having those conversations afterwards are so important. Like, why did you do that? Why did you make that play? What would you have done if I had done this thing differently um because so often i mean if you're playing on the crucible against somebody random it's just like gg leave game and there's no ability to have those follow-up conversations so if you're don't have an active local community uh, you can still get that aspect of it online Uh, i really encourage you if that sounds like something you'd like to do check out our discord people are firing games in there all the time I've just been so impressed with the community that's sort of formed in there. People are giving great advice, welcome to new players, but then there's also really skilled people who are willing to jam games. And I feel like it's upped our own level of play. Oh, it's definitely upped my level of play, but it's also lowered my winning percentage. There's some, <laughs> there's some good players in the Discord. And I, man, I would rather play that. Like all the games are super close and it's really stepped up my game because these are the kind of players you can't make a mistake against. And that's kind of what you need to be prepared to do if you go to a big tournament. So if that does sound like something you might enjoy participating in, please join us and we'll have a link to the discord in the show notes of this podcast. Yeah. And I only post looking for games like three or four times a day there. So, (laughs) (laughs) so next up is bringing the right equipment with you to the tournament. So you don't want to show up at the tournament and then realize 
that you don't have everything you need to just have a smooth experience. Yep. So what that's going to mean is if it's a three deck tournament, you're going to need all of those. And we're going to, we're going to talk about this as if this was a premier level sub vault tour, um, level and above, uh, chain bound is a little more lax on these, but, um, you're going to need your deck sleeved and opaque sleeves. What opaque means is you can't see through them. That way you can't have marked cards underneath. Uh, if you use dragon shields, be wary of some of the dragon shields. Some of them are kind of light colored and you can kind of see through. I don't know that it would be a big issue, but better to just make sure that you can't actually see your Archon picture. Yeah, I got some Dragon Shields, I think are like Ruby, and they're like speckled to like be shiny. But I would not recommend those for premier level play because I think somebody could consider them to be marked because they're not totally consistent. So it's really important to get the solid color as well. Yeah, solid color is probably best. I mean, there's cool graphical ones, too, that you can get, and those are fine as well. Just make sure that there's no random markings on them because, I mean, if a judge does a deck check, they are going to check that all of your cards belong in your deck, and they're going to look and see if they notice any markings on the sleeves where you're maybe trying to telegraph to yourself what card's coming up next. Uh, your best bet, too, is to sleeve them all in the same color. That way, if any sleeves break during the event, you've got plenty of extras, and you also want to just bring extra sleeves just in case, no matter what, one deck or three decks, you want to have at least five or ten extra sleeves in case any sleeves rip while shuffling, or the or if a sleeve becomes marked because you grabbed it too hard or your fingernails scratched it. So you will also need to bring all your own tokens. So they can be uh, basically anything as long as they're consistent and not dice. Right. Not dice for premier level events. Judges get salty. Yeah. So the, for whatever reason, Fantasy Flight Games has officially banned the use of dice. I think the fear is that they're too easy to manipulate uh, and, and can lead to an incorrect board state, whether intentionally or unintentionally from the players. Uh, so no dice, um, but usually whatever else would be fine as long as you have enough. So make sure you bring at least 20 amber tokens whatever they are. You want something to indicate stun as well. And then you'll also need damage tokens. And then finally, yep. uh, three keys. And, and the keys are important that they have an unforged and forged side. Yeah, and there are apps out there to track that. But for an actual event, I know as an, an opponent, I would prefer my opponent to have physical tokens because they're just easier to see from a distance. They're easier for me to kind of keep track of as well. They're not going to go to sleep on you. <laughs> and then you're like, what's going yeah, on? Right. No, there is an unfortunate story apparently at Vault Tour Seattle where somebody was using a phone app and the uh, player across from them didn't realize they were at two keys, thought they just didn't realize they had that many keys. And that's unfortunate just to not know the current game state because of that. So physical tokens are best. At Vault Tour Seattle, they were handing out the uh, starter box punch outs. So anybody that did show up unprepared, they did actually have a, a way to help them play since it was a sealed event, but you're better off bringing your own tokens. So speaking of best practices of using tokens, uh, there are a couple other best practices to keep in mind just to make sure you have a smooth experience. Uh, so we recommend pile shuffling your deck at least once before you go on to do a traditional shuffle. So pile shuffle would be when you uh, put your deck into maybe eight or six piles of cards. So put like one card in one pile and so on and so forth. 
And the reason you do that is to make sure you get an even distribution in shuffling. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is that you can count your cards to make sure that you do, in fact, have all 36 cards and don't have one stuck in your deck box or maybe uh, shoveled into your opponent's deck in the last round or something like that. You'd want to find that out right away. It's also important to note you would then have to do a traditional shovel afterwards because theoretically that could be used to stack your deck if you were somebody who was inclined to do that. Uh, it's not actually legal if that's your final shuffle. After that, if, if it is a premier level event, I'd also recommend pile shuffling your opponent's deck for the same reason. If they have 35 cards, you know, you want to know that before the game begins. Just to make sure everything's on the up and up. That is interesting. Another good idea is to uh, just be overly courteous with your opponent. So a lot of people, will it'll ruffle their feathers if you... Maybe you're unfamiliar with the cards, you grab it and, and pick it up to read it. So it's just recommended that you always ask before you touch anything of your opponents, whether that's a card, a token, a key, or anything else. And then also over-announce. So I've had a situation come up where, you know, even though I announced that I had, you know, and flipped my key, my opponent didn't realize I'd flipped my third key and it kind of created an uncomfortable conclusion to the game because, you know, he felt as though... He snuck it in there. Right. So after that happened, like, very early on in Keyforge, I'm always, like, make sure my opponent knows, like, okay, and now I forge my second key, you know, check. If, yep. You know, I check on two keys. And just to make sure if there is any kind of question over the game state that you've made it explicitly clear... There's no TCO chat box letting you know all the actions that are being taken. So it's usually best practice to just kind of announce every card you play, kind of let them know. It's like if you play Scrambler Storm, just, you know, say, yeah, you know, Scrambler Storm, game I Amber, you can't play actions next turn. Just make it very clear, like very concise. Uh, the game is best played when both players have all the information that's needed to keep playing. Um, and then going back to like grabbing and touching things. So think the general practice right now for like stealing and capturing i think stealing typically you just add one to your card and ask that they remove one from their card for however many you're stealing and i think i mean at Volter seattle i think capture we did grab like i'd grab my opponent's amber i wouldn't grab my opponent's amber they would place their amber on the creature that was capturing has that been kind of the same way in your area there jake yeah, that, that's my experience. And usually I don't want to like freak people out that's super uptight because that's not what it is at all. Uh, you know, everyone's been super kind as long as you're just make the small effort. Like, hey, can I read that card? Like, sure, no problem. Yeah. Hey, I capture one. Is it cool if I take this off? Like, yeah, no problem. Like nobody, like everybody's there to have fun and play the game. But yeah. it's just kind of like a better safe than sorry type thing. Yeah, so gaming fuel is our next one. Get the necessary amount of sleep the night before to be rested at the event. Like, it's great to play test the night before, but you know, try to cut it off early enough that you're going to get good six to eight hours of sleep because, like Jake said, it's a taxing day when you're making that many high-level decisions turn after turn, hour after hour. It will, it will leave you kind of like brain-mushed at the end of the day. So you want to start with a fresh rested body, fresh rested mind. Uh, make sure to eat a good breakfast before the event. Again, very taxing. You just want to make sure you have energy keep you going throughout the day bring a beverage preferably water but uh, to stay hydrated while you're playing but i mean if you need that energy drink or coffee in the morning to help you get going 
but just to make sure I, I would bring a bottle because there's usually water fountains somewhere in the area that you can fill it up so you can stay hydrated and not, you know, be sitting there with cotton mouth in the third round and having that affect your decision planning. And then I usually get a couple of snacks too, like just some nuts or something like granola bars or fruit snacks or something, just something to kind of munch on. Uh, typically you will get a lunch break if it's a long day, but just kind of getting like that little energy shot in between rounds is kind of nice to just chew on something, get a little, little added energy. Uh, the next one is just travel preparations. I think we can just suffice this to say, try and get there a little bit early. You don't want to be stressed out because you're walking at the last minute trying to figure out, you know, how to, what you, where you need to go, how you need to check in, etc. Um, so just try and get there a little early so you can have a seat, take a breath, and sort of just get ready to play. Yep, and just double check any directions. So if you're traveling someplace new, just really make sure you've ensured that you're going to the right place and that you're allowing yourself enough time. If you have to fly in, make sure your flight gets in early enough that you can get your bag or whatever you need to get, get in a car and get there. So just, you do not want to spend all that time and money and then take a game loss or, you know, lose your spot in the event because you didn't check in on time. And the final one, this one's really important to me is just bringing the right state of mind, the right mentality to the event. Um, one thing I've learned over really from playing like competitive sports is uh, a philosophy that I always carry with me and, and I've taught to teammates and when I've done coaching as well is, is you win because you're having fun, not the other way around. I think a lot of people, especially for whatever reason in competitive card game circles, uh, sort of have this mentality that like I'm there to win and that's like what gives me satisfaction is winning games. Um, and I think that's just a very backwards way to go about it. Uh, not only because if you don't then win, are you gonna you're setting yourself up to have a terrible experience? And to and you know, let's be honest, only one person can ultimately win their final game at an event. Um, but also because if you're having fun, you're just satisfied. You're doing. You're relaxed. You're just gonna perform better. And you know whether that's at work on the soccer field or a Keyforge tournament. I think that really carries throughout. No, definitely. Like when you're relaxed and having a good time, like your mind isn't afraid of the what ifs. You're just, you're relaxed. You're making the decisions. You practice with your deck. You're feeling good about it. Um, there's a poker concept. that's also been mentioned in other card games, but going on tilt. So on tilt means that maybe you lost a game you thought you should have won, or maybe something just happens and it just kind of like sets you off. Now you're in this like agitated, angry, like things are going against me state of mind. And once you go into tilt, it's hard to get out of it. One and two, it tends to be very detrimental to your play because now you're playing as if the odds are stacked against you. And it's just, it's a bad mindset to get in. And it, it happens to everybody too. I mean, I've been on tilt during tournaments. I've been on tilt on the disc golf course. You know, once once you get there too, it's just it doesn't help anything. It's one of those things where something bad happens. You just kind of have to go. Well, you know, I lost that game. I made this mistake here. You know, this game's over. But now I'm just X and one. I can still make it. Just gotta refocus and go into the next game. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And that's another place where sort of friends and uh, you know, if you have people you're there at the event with, like talk to them and then. If they're the one having a hard time, just try and support them. Let them know 
you know, it's like, you know, that sucks, but let's refocus and, and win the next game. And we're all here to have a good time and sort of enjoy this shared niche nerdy hobby of keyboard for sure all right in this week's one stood against many one stood against many (laughs) (laughs) is three weeks in too early for us to sort of call it oh sam for people in the know no, I think so. I think that's fine. Everybody out there, oh Sam, one stood against many. Oh Sam. Oh Sam. So in this week's uh, edition of Oh Sam, I want to make the argument that adaptive and bidding formats of any kind are great for new players. The general consensus on this is that adaptive and bidding formats are super fun, but they don't work for new players. And I think that's why a lot of stores and communities have defaulted to to not running those events at all. No, and you can understand that. So like the adaptive format does seem very skill intensive, but there are some elements of the adaptive format and the bidding format that allow a newer player a chance, such as say a newer player has five decks and a veteran player has 50 decks. I'm guessing the veteran player is probably going to have a better deck than the person with five decks. But in the adaptive format, both players are going to get a chance to play with that really good deck and then bid on that really good deck, which the bidding of the chains, if the bidding goes correctly, should limit the better deck to make it more of an even matchup in the third game. That's exactly the point that I want to make. It seems like when I've seen this discussion happen online, I've been involved in this discussion... And bring up like, well, you know, if we want to attract new players, we should really think about implementing these adaptive and bidding formats. The big pushback is like, oh, well, that's just going to be so hard for new players, right? New players are going to lose really bad. And sort of my answer to that is like, guess what? New players are already losing really badly. <laughs> you know, yeah. no. When whenever you start a new hobby of any kind, I think it's it's generally expected that there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve. And I'm fine with that happening here. And I think most new players are fine if they don't win the first tournament they enter. And in fact, probably aren't expecting to win the first tournament that they enter. But what I think can be really bad for a community and the longevity of this game is if somebody shows up to the first tournament with their unique deck that's fresh out of the box that has sort of been advertised to them as a deck that's going to be roughly on the same competitive playing field with all the other decks and three rounds in a row they're playing against somebody who's got 20 plus decks and is running out something really strong and i think it's very reasonable in that situation if if, if a player comes away from that experience thinking wow those decks are busted you know i can't compete with that with what i have now and the only opportunity to improve then is to go out and buy more decks or spend money on the secondary market where I think if it's an adaptive format or there's bidding involved in any way, even if that same player goes to the tournament, loses all three rounds, they can say to themselves, wow, like, you know, I learned something about these cards, about how the bidding went. I might do something differently next time. And there's, there's like, an avenue to improve and have a better result next time that's about player improvement. 
plus you got to play a bunch of cool new decks that you never played before. And that's kind of the thing that I wish I got to play adaptive a little more often, just because that just seems like such a cool concept that, I mean, yeah, one deck in the matchup, you're going to have a lot of experience playing with, but then you're going to have to be handed a random deck that you've had no experience piloting against a deck that you've piloted a bunch. And just the knowledge that goes into that. Um, I mean, yeah, again, that kind of favors the experienced player being able to see a list and go, okay, this is how it's supposed to run. But um, again, it's just, you can learn so much more by just playing more decks like that and just seeing different plays. Or even when that newer player hands their deck over to the experienced player and the experienced player pulls something out of it that they didn't realize was possible out of their deck is just another great tool for that person to learn more about the game. And I think it's okay that it's more skill intensive. And in fact, that's a good thing. If, if you lose at something or you win, if you're like that outcome came down to skill, that is a better experience, I think, for both parties than walking away from the game saying, you know, if you lose, wow, that came down to the fact that, you know, that person has a $100 deck that they bought on eBay. I think the advantage for new players is it kind of shows that skill really matters more. And I think that will keep people coming back. But then it also is good for experienced players uh, because it really rewards the time and energy they've put into learning this game. Uh, much more than just like a standard sealed tournament where you show up and maybe you get something good, maybe you get something bad, or even an Archon tournament where it might not feel that satisfying if you're bringing this awesome deck uh, out against a bunch of players who are maybe new, not so experienced, not so invested. Uh, it might kind of feel like your deck sort of is playing itself and you know you, you don't really have that much agency in the game, even if you are winning. Yeah. And then just we, we have seen the adaptive format be used often in the finals of the Vault Tour. So anytime you get a chance to practice that, just in case, um, you know, that one day you're sitting in that final seat, that way you don't have all of the internet screaming at you for <laughs> <laughs> bidding change wrong. <laughs> the, the last thing I'll say about this is one of the issues that often comes up is, is the length of time. And I think that's totally valid. Like playing up to three games is going to take much more time uh, than a single one game round. So that can be really hard to implement at the local level um, for that reason. Because people, you know, a tournament might be four hours, so it'd be more interesting to play four rounds than two. Um, however, I think there are ways around this if, if the community is willing to embrace it and sort of explore all the aspects that Keith Forge offers. What I haven't seen offered anywhere that I would love to see, love to participate locally or elsewhere, would be a modified adaptive where you just look at the two deck lists as you would uh, in any sort of Archon format, and then you immediately go into a round of bidding. That would be sweet. Right? So then you still get that experience of, you know, it's very skill-intensive, right? You have to analyze the decks in maybe a couple of minutes, um, but you still get that opportunity to, you know, show, to demonstrate that you won via skill as opposed to simply a matter of deck list. So I would really encourage people to explore that opportunity. If anyone has played that and, and wants to like report back, I'd love to hear about your experience. All right, so that is it for the OSAM this week. Dan, where can the people find you online? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at Dan is someone. That's D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E and the number one. And then it's the same thing on Twitch TV, twitch.tv backslash Dan is someone. And those are my two major ones. And then we also have our Discord, which we'll have the link in the show notes. So come on, 
the Discord, we have a it's pretty active uh, it's a pretty active server. It's one of the more active ones that I'm involved in right now, which has been really fun and a lot of good discussions and looking for games. So if you want to see your play skill go up and your winning percentage go down, join. <laughs> Absolutely. You are so welcome. We would love to have all of you join us for an even more robust conversation. Uh, once again, I'm Jake. You can find me at Jake Freed. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D at Twitter, um, at Twitch TV. And I'm also on the Discord. Love to jam games against any of you. So that's all for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time. All hail house sanctum. Glory in our blinding light. Go forth on your epic quest. Forge those keys. I think that'll do it. All right, good. I'm a... <laughs> <laughs>